Welcome to the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor podcast, LaughBox. We have multiple hosts and multiple guests and multiple ways to think out of the box using humor. LaughBox is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. Join us for episode 96 with Jim Bob Williams, KDB, and special guest Reverend Barbara Ann Michaels, Jester of the Peace. Yay! Welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Today, our guest is Reverend Artist Barbara Ann Michaels, who's also known as the Jester of the Peace, and she's going to talk to us about her adventures in humor. I'm Jim Bob Williams. And I'm Katie B. Welcome to LaughBox. So now is the official part. Now we'll start asking the questions. Yeah. So uh, should I refer to you as Reverend Michaels or? I'm an ordained interfaith minister and an artist. And I've been exploring how to combine those things. So at the moment, I'm putting them together and calling myself Reverend Artist Barbara Ann Michaels, Jester of the Peace, which is ridiculously long, but that's part of its charm. You know, in the future, I might just end up being Rev Van. How did you get your start as an interfaith minister? My personal spiritual practices are humor, art, and love. And that has been the case from the beginning. I have a long background in improvisation and clown theater. And I know that in this particular environment, if they clown theater, there's, oh, yes, of course, we understand that that's taking the vulnerabilities of life and bringing humor to them for catharsis and resilience. When I say clown theater out in the world in general, it's not always that way, but here I know that it is. The first clown class I ever took was with Abner Eisenberg in 1994 or five. And I had this awakening moment because I'd always been a smart kid I always had been taught if you have the answer things will be good if you don't have the answer something is going to go wrong someone will be unhappy things will be bad and so there I was in my clown class attempting to be funny and I was just failing I was failing 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 completely failing I was not funny I didn't have any frame of reference for that whatsoever and I fell in a heap on the stage and started to cry just cried not more out of embarrassment and frustration than Julie Goel, Abner's longtime partner at that time, came over to me and she picked up my little crying head lump on the floor and just put my head in her lap and stroked my hair. And I felt like, wait, 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 wait. I just failed and I'm getting snuggles. I don't, I don't have frame for this. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't what happens when you don't have the answer. What happens when you answer, we don't have the answer, something goes wrong and bad. This is like, am I being celebrated for being a mess? <laughs> is that possible? And that was a absolutely pivotal experience. And for me, that was on the level of the mystery of life. Like my whole worldview changed at that moment. And I became committed to celebration of humor and this humor as a celebration of failure, resilience, community, connection. And that's one of my origin points for how I became an interfaith minister, even though it's not obvious. And so going forward, I've been an audience interactive theater artist for 30 years at this point. I've done improv, clown theater, stilt walking, festival theater, created characters, roving, galas, trade shows. I was being an educator. I became a wedding officiant because it's the theater job that you never age out of. Like my, my wedding officiant is 405 years old and she is just the cutest little thing, right? What The reason I became an interfaith minister 
is that I was doing costume weddings and helicopter weddings. In the wedding industry, some people need their tradition in order to feel authentic. And there's a lot of space for that. And it's a good thing. I need my tradition. I'm going to feel authentic. And then there's this other group of people where if they don't express their creativity in their wedding ceremony, they won't feel authentic. And those are my people. And so I went about calling myself Jester of the Peace. It was actually suggested to me by a past partner of mine. He said, you know, you're a clown. You're a wedding officiant. You should be the Jester of the Peace. I said, you are correct. I should. And I got a lot of pushback on that too. I had other people in the wedding industry saying, no, you cannot call yourself jester of the peace. You can't do that. Which, and I wasn't one of those people who was like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So haha. It, it was more like, no, I need to call myself that. And so I was doing, and I also became a wedding officiant right before same-sex marriage passed in New York state. So I was marrying couples who'd been together for 40 years, 30 years. There are not words to describe the tremendous honor of that and how extraordinary it was. And so I was doing weddings, like come marry us as Glinda the Good Witch of the North, because none of the faith traditions that we've ever been a part of accepted us for who we are. And, but she's, she's a, a figure that actually represents unconditional love to us. Will you please do that? And my response to that is, yes, I will do that with full sincerity and honor. And so I was doing the Grim Reaper wedding for the, the couple who are costumers, who met in costume. Costume is a huge part of their life. I was doing the helicopter weddings for the people who like have a huge sense of adventure in their love story. And if they didn't have an adventurous wedding, it wouldn't matter. All with complete sincerity. The, the Elvis couple who needed to prove how many vow renewals they could do and had to take my Elvis costume in three times. But I was showing up deeply valuing the sacredness of creativity as a form of love, which when I turn around and look back, I've always been doing. It just took a couple decades for me to turn around and be like, oh, I've always been working on humor and well-being. I've always been working on humor, art, and love. It's, it's totally consistent. I just didn't realize it was consistent. So I became an interfaith minister, which because I couldn't bear the thought, because I was an internet minister doing costume weddings, I couldn't bear the thought that people wouldn't take my clients seriously. And if I'm an internet minister doing costume weddings, because I had originally become a wedding officiant because some friends said, hey, will you do our wedding? And I said, of course, I don't know why you're asking me that. But as soon as I did it, I did understand why they were asking that because I love community. I love bringing people together. I love making things special, reflecting people back to themselves is one of the things I do the most. So internet minister doing costume weddings, my need to have the sanctity of creativity and humor be upheld sent me to interfaith seminary. So I originally went for a business purpose, but obviously there's always going to be a lot more dynamics in the room. And then I had my own journey. And then years later now, it's serving even a further purpose than that. Oh, that's beautiful. I especially like the idea of creativity as an expression of love, because love will drive people to write poems, uh, put themselves out there, put themselves in embarrassing situations, you know, serenading their loved one outside that nothing else can do. Yeah, love is a big driver. The, the, the getting to love, getting away from love, redefining love, self-love. There are industries that are built around all of those things and art forms. To me, going back to that uh, aha moment, it's humor, art, and love as daily practices lead to wellness. And now everything I'm doing right now is about humor and wellness because I've identified my greatest desire for humanity is not humor even though I work on humor and I'm known as a humor artist, my greatest desire for humanity is that people give their gifts while they're still alive. 
And the fact that life isn't set up for that, I find to be inhumane and unconscionable. And so what are the fastest things I've ever found to return people to themselves and each other? What will give us a greater chance of being able to have dream people give their gift to humanity? Because I do believe everyone has gifts to give to humanity. It's one of the things that we're here for which maybe is also a cultural worldview that I would think that purpose is, a, is the meaning of life in part, that's probably an American cultural thing. We'd go around the world and not necessarily find that, but that's the worldview that I'm in. And what I what moves me and sometimes I have cry about, people can't give their gifts appropriately if they don't have the time and space to even find out what they are or without the time and space to find out what they are to, or then the time and space to give them if they do know what they are or to be appreciated if they can get to give them. and humor, art, and love are the fastest reconnectors I know. And that comes from decades of street theater, from clown theater, from Julie stroking my hair, from all the people through all the interactive structures that I've ever created. And I basically create experiences where you express yourself and feel adored that are fast because I have a long background in street theater. You have to get to people quickly and, and humor, art, and love create participation, especially humor. Because if I make serious art, I'm a very serious artist. I just happen to be making very serious art under the umbrella of humor because if I make humorous art, people participate without thinking about it because humor lowers people's defenses. So if I go out in the street and marry people to aspects of themselves, hey, I'm going to marry my creativity. Hey, I'm going to marry Thinly Sliced Nova. I'm going to marry the town of East Hampton. I'm going to marry this camera. I'm going to marry this can of soda. All those are things people have married with me in the street or at a festival. If I created an installation about, hey, come tell me something that's really important to you, and we're going to create a serious ceremony about it, and, and people will just people will hold back. They start thinking. If it's too serious, people start thinking. And what I want is participation and freedom. And so I use humor not for its own sake. I use it with phenomenal gratitude and appreciation because people's defenses are lowered and they participate right away. And then they don't even know why they feel so good. And I, they don't need to know. I know. And we here at this organization all know. It's one of the reasons we're here is just people jump in. I mean, the woman who married a can of soda, she's like, I'm going to marry a can of soda. <laughs> I'm going to make fun of your ridiculous activity, Ms. Jester of the Peace, <laughs> on you. She came to marry this can of soda and was going to make fun of the whole thing. So she was like participating and holding back at the same time. Three minutes later, her can of soda had come to represent her bubbly friends. Huh? So when she was feeling personally flat, she could drink in her bubbly friends and feel better. And then she feels good, even though she came to make fun of me. But she feels good because our craft in the audience participatory humorous arts, which I guess is the name of it I just, I just invented for us right now, is to be able to have very quick transformational experiences by people being seen, heard, celebrated, and connected. Seen and heard is not enough. It's kind of beautiful that, you know, the, the soda became the metaphor for something so much more than just a commercial product. The theological question yep. that was raised is, is it legal to marry your pop? Well, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, I've, I've performed 560 legal weddings. I've performed many hundreds of also spontaneous ceremonies. I, one of the things about me as an artist is I make whatever I'm doing in my life into art. I, when I went to graduate school, I, had, I was a performance artist and I had a studio full of objects that I wasn't using because I was a performer primarily. And so when I graduated, I was like, what in the world am I going to do with a studio full of stuff that I've created that I might use someday, sort of like you save pieces of string for maybe someday. So I stuck it all to my car. And, and then I had an art car, which was amazing. It's like a 2000 pound costume to create 
these experiences of people seeing each other, that momentary humor, art, and love. I believe that a moment can make a change. I know that it could either be a small change or a big change, but I know it for a fact. I've been with thousands of people where a moment made a difference. And it's very important to me that the moment be celebrated. It's not the only thing. It could be a little yay, a huge yay. It could be absolutely life-shifting. It could just be a smile, whatever it is. I think probably also for being an improviser, a, a lot of what I'm doing centers on doing something that's uh, short that's short term in terms of time but long term in terms of potential for a reset. I just want to say Barbara, I'm surprised we're only just meeting now. I have many ways to be that I can be collaborated with at this moment too. Right now I created a congregation called the House of Holy Humor, which is a non-religious congregation because I'm an interfaith minister and my spiritual practice is clown theater. So I'm not a member of a faith. I'm a legal clergy person though. And so my congregation is for people, whether if they have a spiritual practice or atheists, it's all good by me. It's does someone resonate with humor, art, and love as a way to navigate life, as a way to address the mystery of life? Is it a reconnector? And if part of a spiritual practice is to reconnect us when we feel disconnected, Humor, art, and love are the fastest reconnectors I know. And so I, the, the congregation is around them. What does it mean for humor, art, and love to be a daily practice? And one of the primary projects underneath that right now is called It's Funny Now, which is a storytelling series that is a global storytelling series on things that were hard then that are funny now. And that's also a spiritual practice in my view, because retelling our stories through humor gives us an, a reframe, and then we have access to more of ourselves, to each other. We have access to those dreams that I talked about in the beginning that we all have. Tell us more about It's Funny Now. I'd love to. Plus, I'm, I plan to interview all of you. And anyone who's listening to this right now, please, I'd love to interview you, because if you have this much interest to listen to this, I know you have a story. It's Funny Now, the, the bigger big on it is a global searchable video library where you can put in, I need a laugh about fill in the blank and receive a short meaning you know 10 to 20 minute story from someone on earth who has struggled with a related thing like i need a laugh about covid illness money parenting death uh, i need a laugh about people who walk too slow in big cities whatever it, there's a there's a couple aspects to it one of them is the resilience aspect i some people i'm interviewing multiple times because it's very important to me to represent that reframing our story through humor is not that one off thing that i did one time about that one story oh humor was the perfect thing for that one story never used it again but i'm glad i had it that moment it's a practice and so the project is about representing getting to what i call the first laugh the first laugh is something difficult happens. And in the in the words of the American comedy industry, too soon happens, too soon for laughter, too soon, too soon, too soon, too soon. And like a teeny tiny little micro chuckle, which is where, and this is the human condition. I didn't invent it. I'm just bringing it to a modern audience because we've forgotten. So we got that little micro chuckle. And then that's when we put some space around the pain. And that's when the heart has hope. That's when we realize that healing is actually underway or is possible because before that it can feel absolutely impossible to laugh with what used to be hard. Um, so I used to call it circus of the heart. Now I call it, it's funny now because it's a faster, quicker title, but I used to call it circus of the heart because people go to the real life circus, the physical circus to see people do impossible things. Like, oh, if that person can hang off the high wire by their elbow and play the violin, then maybe I can roller skate. Maybe. 
with pants on my knees. Or, and then the emotional equivalent of that is, well, if that person can have a laugh about breaking both of their legs going hiking, which is some a story that I've heard, maybe I can make that phone call to the old friend that we had a falling out. If we're going to the circus to see people do impossible things so that we can be a little more brave, what's the emotional equivalent of that? Hearing people laugh with things that are seemingly impossible and being like, how could they laugh about being held up at gunpoint? How could they laugh about the death of parents? How can they have a laugh about finding out parents are war survivors? How can they have a laugh about brain cancer surgery or almost drowning as a child or a marriage falling apart? I've heard humorous tales on all of those things, suicide attempts, all of those things are in the library that I've had people tell me tales about. And as soon as that story reaches that humor, the possibility for healing comes into the conscious mind. And then as soon as there's something that's genuinely funny, keeping in mind that the original thing isn't funny. No. I mean, brain cancer surgery is not funny, but there's something about the journey that finds humor. And that's the thing that's funny. As soon as the gen as soon as something about this tale is genuinely funny, that's when the story becomes altruistic. And that's when we know that telling somebody else the story can freeze someone else's heart and we can represent the healing journey. So as I interview people, it's if people tell me tales that they haven't healed from to the point of even the first laugh, they can get re-hurt telling the story or re-traumatized sometimes because some of the stories people want, want to be funny. I wish it was funny. I'm just going to tell it to you. I'm like, okay, it might be too soon, but tell me anyway. I'm going to listen to you. But when people tell me the story that they have healed to the point of being able to genuinely laugh, nothing's in the way, not fake laughing, not reaching for comedy to, to cover it up, but true freedom, they get re-healed telling the story and they get super sparkly. They, they, they're, they get so bright. That's why it's a video series. Because I want to, because when we see somebody else glowing because they overcame almost drowning as a child, pretending to know how to swim for 40 years before at age 50, learning a triathlon to finally, you know, learning to swim to run a triathlon, which is a story that's in the library. You know, it's, it's incredibly heartening. And that's when people want to share because they know they can help somebody else. That's what the library is for. So right now I've got, um, I'm doing intergenerational projects too, having younger people interview adults about things that were hard then that are funny now, because we need young people to know that it's not going to last forever, that that reframing with humor is possible, that I, and I have a belief because of my belief in the moment, for the potential of a moment to be transformational, that it's possible to connect with a young person or a person of any age with a moment of uplift right before they make a bad decision and not have that bad decision occur. And I believe in it. I know that it's, I don't know how often that's possible, but if it's ever possible, and I know that sometimes it's true, then it's worth it. So I've got a, a university class in Pakistan studying the physical effects of telling these stories. I've got a couple of high schools. I've got a girls program in Uganda working on it. It's, it's one of the things that is most important to me because it represents re returning to ourselves and returning to the possibility of having our gifts given. Really resonate with the intergenerational aspect of this because we, let's say American society, maybe all Western society, we do a lot of age segregation, supposed to hang out only with people your age. Most people don't live near older relatives or whatnot. So there was a, a woman in Canada, she started a program related to dementia. 
and she had high school students regularly visit people that were in care with dementia. And it opened the eyes for both. It really brightened the day of the elderly to be interacting with someone. And it brought an awareness of the elderly to the high school students. They're like, oh, I didn't know these people were fun. And I didn't, I didn't know they know had anything they to so offer cool. society. I, I thought yeah. if they if they can't use technology that you know we should just put them out to pasture. But this is it's but it's at no time, no matter how much technology we have. I mean, honestly, an avatar is still a person looking for love. It's it's at no time in human history, 500 years from now, the stories people are telling me on It's Funny Now right now are still going to apply because the human heart, it's the human condition. It's ancient. Many thousands of years, people have been laughing as a healing mechanism. It's just that we've forgotten. And the more that I can create intergenerational respect, then younger people can look to older people and be like, oh, right this won't last forever and you're telling me a story about it let me get some hope let, let's get together let me let's it, it, let's restore some respect and also older people listening to younger people because i i can't tell you how many times in the i'm in florida right now where the division between the age groups is even bigger than it is in most other places i can't tell you how often i've heard people say and i will because it's scientific to do so i've probably had at least 10 people in the last week and a half say some version of young people can't communicate young people don't know how to communicate they're on their phone they can't speak they don't know they can't hold a conversation and this is not it's not that's not that's just as false of a statement as older people are out to lunch and don't understand technology and therefore they're irrelevant there's a communication mismatch going on right now and maybe there are i mean there are certainly some communication styles that change generationally where then you get people saying kids today doing those crazy things that they do. I don't understand those kids today. The, the human heart works the same way, no matter how much technology we have. And so one of the things I feel is to find a place in the metaverse for this project, because I feel a moral and genuine connection in the future. And so when we're creating 3D reality, if I don't get right with technology and put some version of this in the future, then these stories that I'm collecting, which eventually could be in an outmoded technology, won't be able to serve. And so I have just as much as I'm aware that that re retelling our stories is ancient, I also am aware that because of technology, I can actually put something in the future. And so I feel compelled to do so. So I'm working on that. I'm telling my story a lot until I find the partners who want to do that too. So oh. since we're diving so deeply into these projects, there's two more projects on your website that I'd love to hear about Ripple Affection Culture and Love Letter Lounge. Can you go into those? Sure. Yeah. And there's also the Humor Arts Museum. The Humor Arts Museum is uh, is for uplifting humorous art in all media. And so I we have a cartoon show right now. The next up is Contemporary Humorous Sculpture and Photography. Yeah. Jim Bob came to one of our, our receptions, which was so fun. Uh, we started off with a solo show for Karen E. Gersh, who is our first curator, who um, is an internationally touring circus and other circuses acrobat and a painter love letter lounge came about as a valentine's day project for me probably 10 years ago maybe nine or eight i don't know something like that where i i did an installation where people could come and write love letters to anyone or anything just like you can marry anyone or anything i have another project called i vote for you where you can vote to be president of anyone or anything they're all self declaration projects 
who are you? What are you about? If it's ridiculous or serious, I'm good. I just want you to express yourself in an authentic way and be celebrated, period. So if someone put an address on the letter, we would mail it. And if someone didn't put an address on the letter, we would ritually burn it, shred it, drown it, stomp on it, like whatever was necessary. And so the Shashama organization in New York City, which is uh, a 25-year nonprofit that puts artists in rental spaces in between the rental of those spaces. I've worked with them a number of times right now. At this moment, they have me in Port Authority bus station in New York City uh, in a storefront to make a difference in the lives of commuters through interactive humorous performances, which we are doing. I, I did a Love Letter Lounge during a Valentine's Day some years ago on 37th Street in a storefront that I got through them for a, a short period. And people people come in, what happens is that people come in to write one letter and, they, and sometimes they stay and write five because there's something about, even though it's a group of people sitting together writing, not speaking to each other, there's something about the permission of being in community that lets people write the letter they couldn't write when they were alone. And so they will write letter after letter until they get to that letter and then sit, close it, exhale, stare into space, mail it, don't mail it, what, whatever it's going to be, and then write another one and another one and another one. So I'd have people sit there for a long time. I'd have people sit there for a couple hours sometimes, some for a couple minutes. I had people who uh, don't write come and ask me if I could transcribe a letter for them. That was really meaningful. And then I have a box for love letters for straight from strangers. And so you, after you wrote your own letters, you could write a love letter to a stranger and put it in the box. And then it's like, give one, take one. And people invariably, more often than not, far more often than not, would take a letter, read it and be like, oh my God, it was written just for me. This is exactly what I need to hear right now. Nothing could be more perfect. And whether or not we bring that to, to it or whether that is, or whether that goes back to my mystery of life views about art, love and humor, I loved that. And, I, and then I would hear, oh, I still keep it on my bureau five years later. I mean, from my Marry Yourself project, I have people, I married this one fellow to his, his practice of painting. He hadn't painted in 35 years, married him to his painting. This was probably seven years ago. He still comes up to me every time and says, ah, it's the gesture of the piece. Um, let me tell you about my how it's going in my studio. It's one of the things that I'm doing is I'm taking civic constructs and making moments out of them because it's how humans mark time. We mark time through community witness ritual weddings. If, if somebody went off and eloped, everybody else is PO'd, right? How could you go off and elope? It's like you didn't even get married. You didn't get married in my body's time system because we didn't do your ritual uh, voting. It's, you know, it's time for the election. If you, if somebody went and graduated from college and didn't attend their graduations, like you didn't really do it without the ritual. And so I'm taking things that are super familiar, like weddings and and uh, and voting and museums and post offices and creating audience interactive humorous art out of those things because they tap things that we know and so they can go deeper because they're part of our uh, the time system of how we live life on a daily basis and a yearly basis. So um, Love Letter Lounge is the post office of the town. So if I've got a museum and a post office and a congregation and a library, which is, it's funny now is a library. I am making a town. I didn't know I was making a town. I'm making a town 
I've temporarily called it Humorville. I need a different name because I'm, I'm not the first person who thought up the word Humorville, even though it's a really great word. Happy to take ideas, but I it turns out I'm making a town and that makes sense to me artistically when I look back and realize that I've been using common social constructs for a very long time, consistently when I look into that. And I think I was always going to make a town. I just don't think I knew I was going to make a town. And that also becomes a great metaverse destination someday and maybe a building or an actual town. I don't know, TBD. So Ripple Affection is a name that I coined that describes what I do as an artist really well. I create a ripple effect of affection. I had wanted to talk about seen, heard, and celebrated, and this is a good time to do that. Seen and heard is not enough because this is a theory that I have. People can be seen, heard, and rejected, which is totally devastating to the human spirit. And that is one of the things I think is happening when we've got teenage gun violence. We have an epidemic of teenage gun violence, which is totally devastating culturally. And I think, I think I'm saying this is a theory because it's an idea that I have that part of that is young people feeling seen, heard, and rejected. It's like, okay, yeah, you're there, you're there, no. And that's, it, it just tears people apart to feel that. So everything I do is about seen and heard and celebrated. And when people are seen, heard, and celebrated, then they can be, then they feel connected because seen, heard, rejected, disconnected is the next step of that. And then people make bad decisions because they feel alienated socially, which is not how humans are designed. We're designed to be tribal. We're, we're community creatures, but seen, heard, celebrated, then what happens after that is connected. So that's the, the underlying ethos, all of this and ripple affection. Ripple affection is my umbrella term for the way that the culture of Humorville and the House of Holy Humor and it's the underlying mechanism of the work that I do. And so in there is an installation called Calling In, where you can call yourself on the phone and tell yourself everything you've been holding back, uh, which people take either humorously or seriously. There's I Vote For You, where I'll go out in the street and vote for people to be president of whatever they want, which I've toured around the Eastern U.S. also. And there's Gesture of the Peace. There's It's Funny Now. All the projects are underneath that umbrella as a way to describe the culture of this work. Financially, can you talk a little bit about that? The artists are probably saying, how in the hell is she making money? How are you surviving? How are you doing I love it? that question. This is such a good question because when I go and look at what keeps people from living there purpose or their their what they would what they would self-define as this is my gift to humanity. There's three things. There's emotional health, which is what I work on with all of my artwork. There's physical health and there's financial health. And if something if one if they're not all there, it's difficult. It's not impossible. It's still a lot more difficult to really make sure those gifts get discovered, given and appreciated. So I, I have a long history as a gig worker in the arts. I'm going to be in the show. I'm going to be, I'm going to do this festival. I'm going to teach this thing. I've also been, I was also an educator for 20 years in the arts on the side, which is one way. Uh, I'm going to get this grant, which is going to last for a certain amount of time. All of those things are, it's like the gig, the gig to gig to gig to gig life. Even, even when I was a teacher and I knew that I was going to have another class, it's still a gig. And what I'm doing right now is complete, I'm learning a tremendous amount about how movements are funded and leveraging time, space, money. I'm learning about leverage basically at this point in life, which nobody taught me about. And as soon as I did learn about it, I felt like, what? How did nobody tell me that it's possible to combine resources, make money together, create systems that generate income? I, I just, I, I, I felt like, 
somebody pulled a fast one on the arts. Uh, and so now I am doing things like setting up subscription programs, which are on which are ongoing sources of funding. I'm collaborating with other groups that have ongoing funding. I am creating sponsorship and donors and, uh, and without being officially a nonprofit. I mean, I might have to become a nonprofit, but I didn't want to be because at least not to start because I didn't want to be yet another arts nonprofit asking the same 173,000 people for the same money that every other arts nonprofit is. And that's not, it's not sustainable. I think that there's a lot of artists trying to make a go of a begging for money model, which is exhausting. And so there's got to be other ways. And so I'm looking at licensing and syndication and everything I'm looking at right now and everything that I'm getting into has to do with recurring systems. I was completely, as a business person, allergic to systems for, I would say, a good 27 years because I thought that systems were oppressive. I could never be in a system. If there was a system in my life, I would be, I, I wouldn't be able to work, you know? Oh dear. And then I realized that improv comedy is a system. People all around the world play the exact same games. And if they didn't, and if they weren't super easy to adopt, improv would not be a worldwide movement. And that would be sad because improv has changed countless people's lives. And there are many people worldwide who use improv as a spiritual practice because it is basically a community comedy meditation practice that is physical and it's, it's extraordinary. And when I realized that, I felt like, oh, okay, system's good. Let me just make more. So what I'm doing is creating my work in a way that other people can take on and pass forward, pass around. So I'm creating systems. That is a completely different financial conversation. It's a different set of financial priorities. I'm still navigating some of it, but I'm making this transition from being a gig artist to being a legacy business. And I'm only focused on creating things that will outlive me. That doesn't mean I don't do one-off things because it's fun. I do one-off things because it's fun. But in general, my my main focus is systematizing my projects and creating templates. So with It's Funny Now, I'm creating templates for It's Funny Now that I then can offer to schools anywhere, 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 organizations, anywhere. I, I have... Uh, a holiday project called a holiday where I created a humorous personal growth holiday for every day of the year because house of holy humor, of course, is going to be a holiday every single day. This is the house of holy humor. And so once I have 365 and I have, as, as of this recording, I have 168, uh, and that's a program that goes on. I can have other people's programs use it. It's how can I create things that people all over the world can use? And, and have that be financial. And then I'm, and then I'm also very interested in um, other kinds of leveraged income projects and really leaning into that and learning about investing. It's just, what's the long-term? Artists are not taught to think ahead. Artists are taught to be in the studio and respond to what's coming up in the moment sacredly and honoredly and hope somebody else comes along to make something out of it. That doesn't honor the longevity that doesn't honor that doesn't make anybody's art intergenerational which goes back to the intergenerational conversation we we're having before if we don't find ways as artists to create things that outlive us with our artwork 
which now that I understand systems and that only come from systems, now that I'm no longer allergic, but I snuggle them, right? We have to do, we have to have a mindset shift in order to have our work expand. And that's, that can be a real 180. There can be a lot of, it can be very confrontational because after we've been taught for decades and decades to just be in the moment, okay, well, I'm going to be in this moment, but I'm going to make sure that somebody else in 300 years can also be in their moment with this thing that I found out. There's no possibility of passing forward what we learn and making societal shifts without leverage big picture thinking. So that's that's a, what I'm basically I'm basically answering that question by talking about the massive mindset shifts I've had about fin about finance and money and and collaboration. Really, I don't want artists sitting alone being like I'm going to invent this thing by myself and hope that someone finds me as I post every day on Instagram about it with my fingers crossed. I mean, that's not collaboration is everything. And I didn't know that either. I didn't know collaboration was everything, but that's how people are designed. We're designed to, you know, somebody in ancient times in a meat eating tribe, some, some group of people went out and got a wildebeest and brought some back and everybody had some or the wilde carrot, if it was a vegetarian tribe, they brought back the wilde carrot, everybody had some. And then one day, which was a very sad day for humanity, someone was like, sorry, that's my wilde carrot. You gotta go get your own. I don't know how that happened. I don't know what day that happened on, but that was a sad day for humanity. And so I'm creating projects that recreate community connection and connection with our own selves. And just to, to restore the way that we are designed to be, which is sharers. We're designed to be sharers, including including financially. This is one of the things that I'm most passionate about at this moment. Right there with you. That's all I want to say, Jim Bob. Go ahead. My mind is blown right now because I came from an engineering background. First 35 years of my first life, you know, systems are good. You strive to get systems. I went from there to community theater and took an improv class and I realized improv is a system and it's the same system we used to use to uh, solve wastewater treatment plant upsets. But that's another story for another time. There are a lot of people who are in the humor ecosystem have similar projects. And I think there's, yeah, there has to be a way to collaborate and to leverage these ideas. Uh, part of the mission of whatever my humor town is going to eventually be called and the House of Holy Humor specifically and Humor Arts Museum specifically and everything specifically. I mean, honestly, everything I do puts sunshine on people and without leaving myself out, I, I have to also be included. I need to be seen, heard, celebrated and connected too. This is not just for everybody else. I'm a human being also, but it's very important to me to create projects that celebrate the work of others and create collaborations around the globe. I'm desiring to, lead and co-lead the we're all doing this together look this is a movement this is there's a global movement of people working on humor and wellness that is unorganized i mean it's lightly organized in different places and there's a great opportunity to have greater awareness on the global scale including collaborating with some organizations that already have a global view and when the global organizations start collaborating with the other global organizations, maybe eventually we'll truly be global. But it's it's got to be global because it's all humans. There are no humans to which humor does not apply, even if they haven't found it in years or or even if it feels impossible, which is what It's Funny Now is about. Well, anyone who could, can bring humor, art, and laughter to the Port Authority is blessed with a <laughs> well, that's like busking. skill set. It's like busking. Yeah, well, I mean, so good 
thing I have a background in street theater because when people are in Port Authority, like my bus, my bus, my bus, my bus, my bus, where's my bus, where's my bus? I'm going on my bus, I'm sitting on my bus, I'm asleep. You know, it's like, it's people are, they're zoned out. And so just to be smiled at, just to be reached. We did one of the projects we have there is called I Dance Like You, which is part of that ripple affection culture where we wear t-shirts that say I dance like you. And as commuters are going, I were like, hey, I dance like you, show us your moves, show us your moves, I dance like you, show us your moves. And then some people, somebody might raise their hand or wave at us or wink and then we do the same thing. Whatever they do, we do, because I dance like you. Some people get it, stop and totally rock out knowing that we're going to do exactly what they do. And then that creates a little crowd. I mean, in terms of, even though I said that it's for all humans, because it is the human condition and humor are for all humans, in terms of the way that it actually plays out, this is my, this is how I train people who've never done this work before to be able to do it without being worried about connecting with everybody. Because then you feel like, I need to connect with everybody. Oh no, if everyone doesn't connect with me, I'm gonna feel rejected as a performer if I've never done it before, but this is the structure. Some people want to participate in everything right now. Not necessarily all the time, but today, they basically want you to sit on their lap and lick their face. And I call them the lickers because it's memorable. You're not gonna forget that I said that. And it's, it's metaphorical, obviously, we're not licking people, but metaphorically, they want us to sit on their lap and lick their face. They're totally ready for this. They're the lickers. The next group are the watchers. They want to watch us lick someone else's face, but we don't want, they don't want us to lick theirs. Great, they're watchers. They're, they really want our attention. They want to know, they want us to know that they are there paying attention, enjoying it. They just don't want us to interact directly. The third group is the hiders. They're the people who hide behind a pole, pretend they're on their phone, uh, you know, look and then come back and look again, turn their back and turn like this, like, like turn their head for a moment. They're called the hiders. They're totally participating and they don't want us to know. And the fourth group does not care. It's not their jam. They're busy. They're upset. They're bored. They just don't care about this, whatever. And so that I will say that to people when they come participate at Port Authority with me or anywhere or any of the projects that I've done, because all we have to do is find the liquors and lick them. If we do that, the liquors are happy. The watchers are happy because they get to watch. The hiders are happy because they get to hide. And the people who didn't care, didn't care anyway. And it's not that someone's always a watcher or always a hider or always doesn't care. I mean, I myself can go from, I don't care to lick my face to, I just want to hide and just like see that for a second because I got something else going on. And people bounce back. People can even bounce back and forth in a performance. <laughs> I'm a watcher. Oh, now I want you to lick my face. Oh, now I want to hide. Yeah, whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really about just finding the lickers that lick them. And that gives permission. And that concept also is applicable to any room where anyone is ever speaking on anything at any time. And at parties and everywhere that humans are gathered, those four categories of people realize that it's all of ours. It's not mine, even though I, that's a term that I have that represents what this is. It's something that all of us do. And so another one of the ripple affection projects is called Clown Curious, where I would take people into Central Park, say what I just said, spend 15 minutes doing some improv warm-ups where we reflect each other back to ourselves put a clown nose on without any other physical modifications and go out and find out how easy it is to bring joy to other people. Just as simple as applauding them as they go by, as if they're a parade. It takes so little. And for people to realize, oh, I just put a piece of red plastic on my face and people will smile at me if I smile at them. Yes, does that make logical sense? Not particularly. That's not what we're in the business of. We're in the business of connection. We're in the business of seeing, heard, celebrated, and connected.
Well, I think Katie and I have heard ideas for about 15 TED Talks. Uh, okay, all right, let's do a TED Talk. I'd love to. I would love to. Uh, well, have you talked to Cesar Cervantes? He gave a presentation to, to AATH about uh, preparing for a TED Talk, and several folks have gone on, uh, including Ooh. our pre president, Jennifer Keith, okay. uh, and others. So, uh, I'd love to. I, it's, it's, my, it's a priority of mine to both do this work physically and also share the ethos behind it, because part of my mission is to take things that are in all of our subconscious, like humor and wellness, and seeing her celebrated connected, and put them in our conscious mind again so we can use them on purpose. It's my hope that with the It's Funny Now intergenerational practice, that we can start to remember that, yes, something bad happened to my friend, I can bring them a casserole, and I can talk to them about this laugh eventually, not immediately, and help them by listening to their story over and over again, get to their first laugh, that that can be something that people are commonly aware of, not something that seems like a surprise. Like, how did I ever laugh at that? And that was gonna be possible. Oh, well, actually it's our, it's the mechanism of our psyche. And just to bring, so we can use these things on purpose. Okay, so for the people who are within the sounds of our voices right now, how can they get in contact with you? So right now, the best way to get in contact with me as of this recording, the best way to get in contact with me is uh, jesterofthePeace.com, J-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-T-H-E-P-E-A-C-E. -E -E -E. All of the projects live there right now. It may come to pass. Don't people are listening to this recording in 500 years. There may be different names for different things, but Jester of the Peace is the, is, is the hub for all of it right now. And Jester of the Peace is also my social media handle almost everywhere. So do you have any particular event coming up? And, you know, of course, we're recording this in January of 2023. So there's a... There's a Yes, I well, so at this moment, I have this residency in Port Authority. The It's Funny Now project, one way to collaborate with me right now is to contact me with It's Funny Now stories. I'm interviewing people from all over the world of all ages. And also, you know, with the project in Pakistan and with the upcoming project in Uganda, it's interviewing people in their first language because that's where the emotions are the strongest. That's where the story gets told the best. And then translating it so ultimately that pr that project is uh, in multiple languages so we go and search the translation the video translation the subtitle version of that technology so it's funny now is an ongoing project and uh, and i'm also very warm for hey you do things like i do things let's do things together i'm warm for that and i'm also warm for hey i don't know anybody that does anything like what you just said i want to learn about it i'm also open for that it's a it's a community hub, and thank you. Most welcome. I do have some ideas. I will be forwarding them on uh, afterwards. Uh. <laughs> it's such a tremendous honor to be to be here. I have deep respect for this organization and and for all the people who are driven as a life path to bring humor. I mean, to me, because I'm an interfaith clergy person, it is a spiritual practice, and it's also it's also a life path. It's, it's, I remember when I first started studying theater, people would tell me clown chooses you. You don't chose it, it chooses you. Mm. And I, and I do believe that. I believe that this humor chooses us, even if we're engineers. Right. Uh, well, I have one question I have to know. What happened to Mona the art car? So on Mona the art car, which stands for my offering neighborhood art, but she also had a fan that kind of moaned. So that was the other part of it. I had things on there like beads and poker chips and old floppy disks that would look like strange coasters today to new audiences. I had toothbrushes on there. And 
from time to time, my art car would get vandalized and people would steal stuff from it and break the windows and be angry about its existence uh, for some reason, for whatever reason. One time there was a fan of toothbrushes on the, on the back, on the trunk, There's probably 20 toothbrushes and someone came and pulled off 15 toothbrushes. And I thought, well, if you need a toothbrush that bad, please take 15 so you have one now and, and in the future. And I know that sometimes something that is phenomenally joyful and outstanding like that can actually make people upset. I know that it's, it's just also part of the psyche. It's why people um, get use social media to, to vent. It's like whatever, I, I just, I choose to, to just recreate the projects if, if that ever happens, just recreate, recreate, recreate. And so eventually her, her life came to a, her life came to a halt. She eventually ended up at, at a junkyard. I had also uh, experienced a pretty upending, like 180 degree shift in my life breakup. And I painted the entire car black with a one inch brush for three days. And there was an article about that in the Boston Globe, okay. which, you know, it was highly dramatic of me, but, but that's, you know, the press leaned in. I said, okay. And I got permission from everyone involved in the story to tell the story, which they gave, which was a great grace. And, and so even my humorous, serious art car healing ceremony got in the press, but I think that that's appropriate because oh. The more the more we can represent humor, art, and love as as wellness modalities, the better world we're going to live in altogether. I'm just imagining the person that comes to the salvage yard and say, you know, you know, I'm looking for the trunk of a, but it's got to have 15 toothbrushes on it, kid. Oh yeah, we've got one right here. So. Oh yeah, or like you know what? I thought I was coming in here for a bumper, but actually I could really use a new toothbrush. Can we go there instead? Those next one we uh, I don't want to put any auto body shops out of business, but. You know, if you got a scratch or a ding, you know, why not glue a clown nose to it? Exactly. I ran a project in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, where I was living at the time. It was a, it, a brief project because I didn't stay there that long. But it was it was an art car project where I would gather together art car artists. And we were in First Night Boston together. I mean, for a, for a gregarious person, it just creates so many smiles driving down the road. And that creates an opportunity. And, then, and the, the funny thing is that I would be driving my art car around. And then I wouldn't be driving my art car. I'd be driving someone else's art car and be like, how come I'm not, how come nobody's smiling at me as I'm driving? How come people are not really paying any attention today? And I'd be like, oh, right. I'm not driving an art car. It, it becomes like a social vitamin to be able to, to communicate with people that way. I think but only really, people that drive like the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile or the Mr. Peanut van can appreciate that, right? They pull into the parking lot at the state fair or whatnot, and everybody goes bananas. Everybody goes bananas for the for the hot dogs. Yeah. They should put a banana in there. I don't know if there is a banana car. There has to be. Okay. I'm sure. I'm Maybe sure. We, okay, we need a grant from Chiquita. Banana rocket car. So, uh, wow, you're like clone from my own heart because... <laughs> If I can go back the last 30 years and if you and I had a conversation about this project and that project and this project and how we made money and how we lived and how and what we're doing now, there's some massive parallels. So I see an opportunity that we need to take advantage of. For sure. None that we are going to experience when we have that conversation. I call it new old friends. People who yes. feel like you've known them forever, even though you just met them. Absolutely. I, yes. I created a, a holiday, a holiday holiday for that. <laughs> it's called New Old Friends Day, where you go out and acknowledge whoever it is that uh, who, that you just met that feels like an old friend instantaneously, inspired by right. another person who I will introduce you to, 
who has been on this vibe for a very long time. We just happen to be like, how do I understand you so completely, so fully right now in the depth of your soul, not in what you had for lunch yesterday, mm -hmm. not, not in your preferences, but in your, in your soul, how do I get you so, so quickly? Some of the other fun holiday holidays are there's one called call them back day for people who avoid their voicemail, where you go on your phone and go to the oldest voicemail that you have been avoiding and never listened to and finally listen to it and call them back. And then another one is, um, I love you first day, where if there's a human being in your life that you love and you have not yet said, I love you, it could be a friend, a colleague, it could be a honey bun, it could be a family member or someone who haven't said, I love you too in a long time. Today, you go say it first. So some of them are action oriented, some of them are mindset oriented, but I did that because holidays make us brave. January 1st, join in the gym. December 31st, there are no gyms in North or South America. I cannot work out. I'm sorry. I would if I could, alas. People call their mother on Mother's Day when they're angry. They're just going to call her. And so it's, if we're going to use holidays to make brave emotional steps, let's just have every day be a holiday. That's one of the purposes of House of Holy Humor and Holiday too. Yeah. Love it. And so happy old friends day. Yeah. Katie. Same to happy you. Happy new old friends yes. day. Jimbo. Yes. Well, we've covered how to find you. We've covered the majority of your current projects. We've covered your amazing history and your amazing life and brain and heart. And is there anything that you'd like to close this podcast with? I am going to do a paraphrase because I'm not going to remember it exactly. When I graduated from Interfaith Seminary, this is Interfaith Seminary. We're not being ordained into a faith. And so we have to write our own vow because we're not being ordained into a faith. It's like, it's the faith that I perceive. And so my, my vow goes something like, but not exactly like this. I vow to acknowledge and honor all life as an equal, as, as an equal form of love. And I will use my truth and trust and artistry and creativity and connection to unite us all in celebration. That's the vow that I created. And when I look across my whole career, that's what it is. I'm like celebrella, you know, the, the celebration umbrella. And because I believe that life is to be celebrated. And I think that life's not set up necessarily that way, as I said in the beginning. And so we want our gifts to be given and found and and shared. And that's something that we have to help each other to do. And so it's whoever resonates with that vow and in a win-win harmonious way, let's band together and unite everybody in celebration. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. And, uh, we're honored to have you. Thank you for joining us for episode 96 with Reverend Barbara Ann Michaels, Jester of the Peace, and our hosts, Jim Bob Williams and Katie B. Thank you very much. This has been Laugh Box, brought to you by the Association of Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Laugh Box is a production of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Visit us online at www.aath.org. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Music by Gary Rubio. For more information, www.garyrubiomusic.com. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.